Welcome to this week's Parsha Shir. This week we're not going to talk about the Parsha. I'm actually going to talk about Hanukkah. We're going to look at some mystical insights into Hanukkah. And uh, we're going to uh, just run around a little bit in the details of Hanukkah. And hopefully we'll be able to draw some powerful lessons from this incredible festival. Today is the third day of Hanukkah. It's a festival, a Jewish festival that lasts for eight days. And each night we light uh, flame, uh, flames, candles or oil lights uh, in the windows or doorways of our homes so that we can commemorate and celebrate the victory of the Hasmoneans, of the Hashmonaim, over the Greeks, over the Yevanim, and that we can uh, demonstrate the fact that there was a miracle, a miracle that took place, that a cruise of oil, a jar of oil, that should have only lasted for one night, uh, that uh, lit the menorah, the hastily constructed menorah of the Hasmoneans, of the Maccabees, when they took control of the temple, and they managed to uh, get rid of the Greek soldiers from Jerusalem. They hastily put together a menorah, and they lit the menorah in the on the temple uh, in the temple area. And that oil should only have lasted for one night or one 24-hour period. It lasted a full eight days. And in fact, what's so incredible is that they were able. I always found this incredible, I don't know much about oil making, but apparently they could produce olive oil, uh, pure olive oil, in eight days. So the reason why there was this delay uh, that they were concerned about was because they had enough oil for one day and it was going to take them another week or more to produce oil that they could then use. It was going to be under the supervision of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest, and that they would be able to light the menorah uh, using oil that had been produced. I, I don't know much about oil making. Maybe there's somebody who's listening or watching this who can tell me about oil making. I, I was not aware that oil could be produced in such a short period of time from olives, or perhaps they had to go to a place where the oil was produced uh, under supervision and that was uh, four days away, and then they could get back in another four days and that was going to enable them to uh, light the menorah with the oil that was, uh, that was pure and that could be used in the temple. But I, I want to talk about something uh, which is very, very interesting and stands at the very heart of why it was that the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees, battled against the Yevanim, against the Greeks. Because we need to understand what was so terrible about Greek rule. In fact, and that's an, an interesting side note, the Hashmonaim, the Hasmoneans, later made peace with the Greeks, the Seleucid Greeks, who took control of Eretz Yisrael, you know that there, was, there were two Greek factions in that area of the Middle East. There were the uh, Ptolemies who took control of Egypt because there was a general um, who was uh, an underling of Alexander the Great that when he died he took, uh, this general Ptolemy took control of Egypt. And then there was another one, Seleucus, who took control of the Syria, um, Syrian area it was known then as the Assyrian Empire. It was an area of the former Greek Empire that was under control of the Seleucid Greeks. And they had a number of kings, and there were Ptolemies in, in Egypt, 
and there were the Seleucid or Seleucid kings that were in the Assyrian Empire. Now, for 100 years after the death of Alexander the Great, he died in the year 332 BC or 323 BC. 332 BC, he took control of of Eretz Israel. 323, he died, and then for 100 years, roughly not quite, but roughly 100 years, the Egyptian Greeks were in control of Eretz Israel. Then there was a battle, and because the area of contention was that was directly in between Syria and Egypt was Eretz Israel, at that stage the Syrian Greeks took control of Eretz Israel, and at some stage Antiochus IV Epiphanes, Antiochus as we call him in Jewish literature and Jewish tradition, um, took control. He became the king after his father Antiochus III died and he became the king and as a result of internal disputes within the Jewish community of Eretz Israel, he got involved, sent Greek troops and there was this battle between traditionalist Jews uh, under Matityahu HaKohen and his children, his five sons. They were controlling the rebels and there were Jews who were fighting for the Greeks and the Greek army and there was this terrible battle and eventually in the year I think 164 BCE the, um, the uh, Jews who were traditionalists, the Maccabees, the Hashmonaim, took control and they were able to establish the Beit HaMikdash again it had been under Greek control there had been unfortunately pagan gods that had been placed inside the temple mount inside the temple area and they got rid of them and they built this menorah and they lit the menorah and there was this victory but what happened during the period the three or four year period that the Greeks were in complete control the Greeks and their Jewish friends were in complete control of Eretz Israel what actually happened so we have it and it's on the basis of various texts and various historical records that exist not only the Gemara we have Josephus we have Maccabees 1 we have Maccabees 2 um, we have a variety of external sources uh, that tell us a little bit about this particular period in Jewish history and we know that the Greeks were extremely keen to eradicate the traditional Jewish practices that existed within the population of Eretz Israel. And Josephus writes that the population was very traditionally minded. They weren't interested in assimilating into Greek culture and it was only the aristocracy, it was those who were closely associated through politics or because of commerce, economic reasons were associated with the Greeks that were eager to adopt Greek customs. But what were the Greeks uh, trying to do? So we know that there were four aspects of a Jewish life that the Greeks tried to eradicate. We know that they wanted to eradicate the um, lunar calendar. So you know that we, um, we conduct ourselves via the moon, not via the sun. And this is a, an interesting dynamic within, uh, within the Jewish traditional framework. Because, as you know, the year that we have is really based on the sun. The moon 
is something that creates uh, a month, but it doesn't create a year. So the moon, um, as it were, is something that we see over a period of a month. First it waxes, then it wanes, and over a period of 29 or 30 days we have a month. But the actual year, the year that as judged by the seasons, is something that's determined by the sun. So there were those in the ancient world who conducted their lives purely on the basis of a solar year. Now how they divided that time is a story for another for another shear, another lecture perhaps, or you can search my website online. You can find I have a number of interesting articles about the solar year and the seven-day week and the differences between the solar calendar and the lunar calendar. But just for the purposes of this uh, uh, little shear that I'm giving for Hanukkah, let me tell you this, that this dispute between the, uh, the Jewish traditionalists, what we would re today refer to as Chazal, and, and those who were very eager to adopt Greek customs, um, was focused on a number of areas. One of those areas was how do we actually um, consider time? Do we consider time according to the solar calendar? Or do we consider time according to the lunar calendar? Jewish traditionalists ran their lives according to the lunar calendar. Now, today it's Hanukkah, and we're in the midst of a, of a leap year in the Jewish calendar cycle. That means we're going to add an extra month of Adar at the end of the Jewish year, before Pesach. And the reason for that is because Pesach has to happen in the spring. It's a Chag of the Aviv of the spring, and as the um, lunar calendar is only 354 days, and the solar calendar is 365 days, there's an 11-day difference between the lunar year, if you count 12 lunar months, and the solar calendar year, which is not divided by months, but which is divided, which is determined by the season, the 365-day solar year um, is quite different than the uh, than the 354-day lunar year. As a result, every three or so years, we add a month to the Jewish calendar years because we want to make sure that we stay aligned with the solar calendar. And this year is going to be, that's why Hanukkah is so early this year, this year is going to be a leap year, and we're going to add another month of Adar. Now, one of the things that the Greeks wanted to abolish uh, when they uh, took control of Eretz Yisrael is they wanted to abolish the lunar cycle. There was nothing, as far as they were concerned, there was nothing that was um, uh, essential in keeping to the, solar, uh, to the lunar cycle, and they wanted to establish a solar calendar year. Now, there were those among the Jewish population who believed that the lunar cycle had been imposed on them by, uh, by others. I don't know how to express this properly, but by people who were imposing a new set of rules on the Jewish population, and that the original cycle, the original calendar year, was, was a solar year. So the Bible actually ran according to a solar cycle, even though the months are mentioned in, 
in a lunar context. And those people, the Tzidukim, caused a lot of problems later on. The Tzidukim, the Baisusim, they are mentioned in the Mishnah, and we have a number of Mishnahis in Rosh Hashanah that talk about how it was that Rabban Gamliel managed to keep the lunar cycle even after the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh using witnesses. Today we run the cycle according to a set 19-year um, cycle, and um, we know that, uh, that every a leap year has been predetermined and that the months of the year have been predetermined so it's not based on witness testimony as it was the time of the Beis Amikdosh and for the few years that I think about a century or maybe a couple of centuries after the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh while the Sanhedrin was still functioning they still kept up with this idea of the cycle being established via witness testimony that was given to the Sanhedrin in Yavne etc but nowadays we run, our, we run our calendar well in advance. If you wanted to know when um, a particular month is going to be in correlation to the solar calendar in 10 years or in 20 years or in 100 years, you could just Google search it and you'll know exactly. But that wasn't the case in the time of the Beis Amikdosh and uh, immediately following the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh, it was based purely on a witness testimony. Now, the Greeks wanted to completely undermine that because they knew if they undermined the lunar calendar and the loyalty to the lunar calendar, they would destroy Judaism. And they had supporters. They had supporters among the Sadducees and they had supporters among those who wanted to assimilate into Greek culture. And that's one of the things they wanted to do. Another thing they wanted to do was to abolish Shabbos. They wanted to get rid of this idea that the seventh day of the week is a day of rest. Another thing that they wanted to abolish was they wanted to abolish uh, an aspect of Jewish life that is so crucial and so central to what it means to be a Jew that uh, there's almost not a family within the Jewish world that wouldn't consider this important. And that is, of course, the mitzvah of bris milah. The Brit Milah, circumcision of an eight-day-old child, or as soon as possible, after eight days, that it is possible for a male child to be circumcised uh, based on their health. And Brit Milah is something that dates back to the time of Avraham Avinu. And later on it was established as a central feature of Jewish identity, Brit Milah, the covenant of the Milah, and the Greeks wanted to completely do away with that. In fact, it was considered something that was a deficiency of the human form. If a circumcision took place, that piece of skin was removed um, from that particular place in the human anatomy. That was considered a deficiency uh, in the person that had it done to them, and therefore those among the Jews who wanted to be more like Greeks than Jews, chose to adopt this custom of, of, uh, uh, of limiting, of abolishing this practice of Brit Milah. And finally, the Greeks were very eager to make sure that there was no taharat hamishpacha, that we didn't observe the customs that demand that a Jewish person, a Jewish couple, only cohabit in the purest way and in that sense to make sure that in the time of the month 
that a woman is not able to be with her husband, that she separates from her husband and then goes to the mikveh, that was something that was extremely important for Jewish traditional Jews, those who, who uh, observe the halacha, but the Greeks wanted to do away with that to make sure that they, uh, their custom of not being in any way inhibited in terms of their cohabitation with women, men and women together, that there would be no um, the limitations imposed on any couple that wanted to be together, that was something that was extremely important to them. So those were the four aspects of Jewish life that the Greeks wanted to do away with. If you wanted to eat kosher, not a problem. That wasn't something that they were bothered with, but they were certainly bothered with the uh, calendar. They, were they had a problem with Shabbat, they had a problem with Brit Milah, and they had a problem with Hilchot Nida. So those were the aspects of Jewish life that they wanted to abolish. And now I'm going to get to the first piece um, in my source sheet, and you of course can access my source sheet by um, clicking on the link, which will be either on your SoundCloud as a comment or on the YouTube um, within the description of the video. You'll be able to um, access the source sheet this week, which is inc an incredible uh, array of information with regard to the aspects of Hanukkah that we're going to be discussing. The first piece I heard yesterday, actually, I wasn't planning on speaking about it, but I, yesterday I spoke to a friend of mine, Simcha Lyons. He's here in Los Angeles from New York. Um, he's here for his grandson's bar mitzvah, and we wish him mazel tov. And he told me a Dvar Torah from his father-in-law, Abtuvia Stern. Abtuvia Stern is, was a rabbi in Miami, and he wrote no less than 38 svarim. He was an incredible Talmud Chochem. Um, and uh, in his early years in the United States, he was in Kansas, um, but later on he lived in Miami, and he was a Rav Amachshir, had a shul, and a highly respected uh, uh, rabbinic personality. And this is the Dvar Torah that his son-in-law, Simcha Lyons, told me yesterday, and I want to repeat it to you because I think it's incredible. You know that we sing Mois Tzur every night of Hanukkah after we light the menorah. Now, Moist Tzur is also an interesting piyut. It's a, um, a poem. Uh, it was uh, a piece of liturgical um, uh, um, prayer that was composed probably in the 13th century. Maybe, maybe there were aspects of it that were composed earlier, but it was put together in the 13th century, that's the 1200s, which means it's about 800 years old. So those who were lighting Hanukkah candles before the 1200s weren't singing Mois Tzur, but over time it began in Germany. Over time Mois Tzur has taken on a life of its own, and it's something that is sung across the Jewish world, and it's an incredible piyut. I'm going to just um, say to you one of the stanzas that we sing every night of Hanukkah that can be found in Moist Tzur. Yevonim nikbetsu alai ozai bimei The Greeks gathered against me, and they gathered against me in the days of the Chashmonoim of the Hasmoneans. Ufortsu choymois migdolai v'timu kol hashmonim. They broke down the walls of my towers, and they defiled all the oils. Uminoisar kankanim naaso neis lashoishanim. 
and from the last remaining flask a miracle was wrought for the Jewish people. The sages of the day ordained these eight days for songs of praise. That is the description of Hanukkah that can be found in Moiz Tzur. But there's a very interesting anomaly in the stanzas. You could say as a poet, if you have a particular poetic touch to you, that the reason for this anomaly is so that the poem can actually work. So the way that the Hasmoneans are referred to in this stanza is Hashmanim because it rhymes, it's perfect, it rhymes with Hashemonim, Hashmanim, Hashemonim. The problem is that the Hasmoneans in the Hebrew are not called Hashmonim. What are they called? Chashmoinoim. They are called Chashmoinoim. So why are they called? Have you ever thought about that? Why are the Hasmoneans called Chashmoinoim? And here we have a clue that perhaps the original reference to them as Chashmoinoim is based on something which is slightly different. By the way, do you know what the word Chashman means in Hebrew? If you ask anybody who knows modern Hebrew, they'll tell you a chashman is the Hebrew, the modern Hebrew word for a cardinal. Now, I can't believe that those who wrote Moiz Tzur, living in Germany, obviously in a time of Christianity, wanted to say that the, that the Greeks gathered against me in the days of the cardinals. That's not what they meant. So what does chashmonim mean? Now, chashman, chashmonai would be the singular version of chashmonaim. But what is the singular of Chashmanim? Chashman. It's four Hebrew words. What did I say earlier? There were four things that the Greeks tried to eradicate and undermine in their attempt to destroy Jewish tradition. And they were the lunar month, Chodesh, which begins with a Chet. They wanted to destroy Shabbat, undermine Shabbat, which begins with the letter Shin. They wanted to destroy Mila, Brit Mila. They wanted to undermine this particular mitzvah. And finally, they wanted to undermine the mitzvah of Nida, Chashman. So what happened was, is that the Yevanim gathered against, they rose up against the Yevanim, the Jewish Yevanim, rose up against those who were Jewish, who were referred to by the four things that they felt were more important than anything, than anything else, for which they were willing to give their lives. Chashman, they were chashmanim. They were people who were concerned about Chodesh, about Shabbat, about Milah, and about Nida. And they fought their battle against the Yavanim, those who wanted, who the Mityavnim, they wanted to Greekify the Jewish nation and Hellenize the Jewish nation. And these Chashmanim, those who were concerned about those four aspects of Jewish life, fought back against them and they were victorious. That's a Dvar Torah that I heard yesterday from Simcha Lyons, from his father-in-law, Rabbi Tuvia Stern. Let's go now to a piece if you look at your source sheet from Rabbi David Mintzberg, 
Why do we light for eight nights and not seven? It's a famous kasha that Beis Yosef, by the way, wasn't his kasha. It appears as elsewhere before he wrote it. But the Beis Yosef asked the kasha if there was a miracle. The miracle didn't really last for eight nights. It lasted for seven. Why? Because when they lit the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash, the first night after their victory against the Greeks, they expected that light to last for 24 hours, and so it did. They didn't expect it to last for another seven days. They thought it would go out after one day, and they'd have to wait a week until they get the oil that they needed in order for the menorah to be lit again. So it lasted for another seven days. So how long was the miracle? The miracle was for seven days, not for eight. That's the kasha, that's the difficulty posed by the Beit Yosef, by Rabbi Yosef Karo, uh, and he asks a question, he offers three answers, hundreds upon hundreds of answers have been offered and suggested to uh, deal with this particular, I think I've spoken about it in previous years in Shurim, I've given uh, as to uh, how we can answer this particular difficulty in the miracle of Hanukkah. And the answers can be categorized in three different ways. Either the miracle was actually an eight-day miracle, and somehow we're going to explain that. For, I'll give you one example of that, that the oil didn't burn through itself completely on the first night. It only burnt through an eighth. It should have, it should have lasted 24 hours, but it lasted for eight days, and only an eighth of it burnt on the, first, on the first night. And that itself was a miracle, so we commemorate a miracle of eight days. That's, that's version one. By the way, there's very di different, uh, various different variations of the miracle based on this eight-day miracle theory, but that's version one of the three categories of answers that are given to the Beis Yosef's Kasha. The second one is that the oil miracle was, in fact, only for seven days, but we celebrate another day of Hanukkah for some other reason. For example, we celebrate the first day of Hanukkah because we were victorious against the Greeks. That's another version of an answer to the Beis Yosef's Kasha. And thirdly, the oil miracle was only for seven days, but the reason we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days is totally different than the actual miracle of the oil. So that's a third answer which is not related to the miracle of the oil. The miracle of the oil happened, the oil lasted for eight days, but if that was the case we should have only celebrated Hanukkah for seven days. The reason we celebrate for eight days is because there's another eight-day connotation or consideration, and that's the answer that I'm going to share with you now, which is an answer from Rabbi David Mintzberg. He's a Talmud of the Sulom, and a lot of the um, uh, time that I spent preparing this shea, I spent preparing using a pamphlet that was produced some years ago by those who were followers, Talmidim of the Sulam, Rav Yehuda Ashlag, who wrote the Sulam commentary on the Zohar. It's, it's a commentary. Essentially, he pre presents it as a translation of the Zohar, but it contains tremendous amount of commentary and annotations to the Zohar, which is, of course, the principal book of the Kabbalah of Jewish mysticism. So Rabbi David Mintzberg presents the following answer to the question as to why the miracle that we celebrate or the festival of Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days and not for seven. Al-Kushas Habes Yosef Zatzal, he says. As to the question of of the uh, of the Beis Yosef 
he asks as to why we celebrate for seven days, for eight days and not for seven. Loma madlikin shmona yomim haloi bayom rishon hoyoshemen. Why do we celebrate for eight days? Because we know that on the first day there was already oil. We know, says Rav David Minzberg, that that the Rebbeinu uh, Shalom, God Hashem, He conducts the world according to two this kind of two parallel systems at play. What are they? There is a direct relationship that each person has with God that is somehow above the laws of nature, not related to the laws of nature. Things that can happen to a person which are miraculous. If it was just left to nature, they wouldn't happen. But they, for example, we, were, we pray for somebody to have a Rafur Shalema. They are diagnosed with a diabolical and deathly illness, and we daven for them for Rafur Shalema. Why are we davening? Because that, we could think to yourself, what's the point? The illness is deathly, it's fatal, they're going to die. What's the point of davening for them? Because there are situations where even if somebody has a fatal sickness, that they can survive and that they can rise above it. That is what we would call hashkocha protis lemala min hateva. Even though you are certain to die, there is an opportunity for you to live if you are able to tap into this incredible force that is hashkocha protis lemala midarachateva. Uscharva oinish but there's another element, which is the one we're most familiar with, which is the certainty of things that are going to happen. Cause and effect. It's here presented to us in language of but really what Rabbi David Mintzberg is saying is that there are certainties in life. You know, for example, that uh, if a person walks in front of a bus and the bus runs them over, the likelihood is they're going to suffer severe injuries and they're going to die. That's a fact. Um, we can present it as we can just cause it cause and call it cause and effect. This is what happens to somebody who puts themselves in harm's way. They're going to be harmed. And similarly, in every aspect of life, we have cause and effect. It's the natural way that the world operates. That's the way things are in life. Okay. Says Reb David Mintzberg, that that we know about, let's call it science, let's call it um, the obvious, those things we know, we don't need to be instructed on that. I mean, sometimes we need to be presented with the facts, statistics may help us work things out, but we know the way things are. We know that if you do this, that that is going to happen. But why things don't happen in the way that they are meant to happen, that is something that is hidden from us. We don't know. You know that there's a Gemara in Brochus, um, and the Gemara says, why, Moshe Rabbeinu asked Hashem, why is it that uh, you behave in a particular way in judgment, um, and that things happen to people, and you choose to behave towards them in a particular way. And it's the one question that Hashem doesn't answer to Moshe Rabbeinu. He says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I don't have to tell you, those things are hidden from the human condition. Those are things that are decisions that are based on my knowledge, my wisdom, my experience. I'm God, and I make those decisions. Those things are beyond human understanding. Why certain things happen in a way that they shouldn't happen, which are, which are to the benefit of man, 
then those things are not um, considered scientifically provable. You can't do an experiment in some laboratory that's going to explain to you why it happened in that particular way. The im hoya hanes chanukah kechavas shovim koychos shovim. So if if it was the case that the miracle of Hanukkah was something to do with koychos shovim, rabim biyad biyad rabim, tzadikim biyad tzadikim, tohirim biyad tohirim, oylehefech. So you've got two equal groups of people who are mounted against each other. You've got Koichos on one side, which is the Jewish nation with their army, and Koichos on the other side, which is the Greek army and the, the military force that they have put together against the defenders of Judea. Now, who wins the war? If Napoleon is up against the Duke of Wellington, who's going to win the war? I guess you could say either one could win the war. The fact is, if Napoleon wins the war, at Waterloo, instead of Wellington, you could say, okay, but Napoleon had a big army and he was lucky that day, but it makes sense that his army would win. And if Wellington won, as Wellington did, you say, okay, Wellington had the upper hand that day for some reason, he won the war. But if Napoleon would come to the battlefield in Wellington and he's going to only got, you know, 112 soldiers and they're all aged over 70 and Wellington beats those soldiers, you don't say, well, you know, it's surprising that Wellington would win. It's miraculous that he would win. Of course, Wellington is going to win. However, if Napoleon comes to the battlefield with 112 soldiers over the age of 70 and his army wins against Wellington's army, then that's a miracle. So what's the um, mamar here, this incredible idea that's presented to us by Rabbi David Minsberg, what he wants to give us is this idea that this wasn't an equal battle. This wasn't a battle of tzaddikim against tzaddikim, or rabim against rabim, many against many, righteous against righteous etc. What was it? This was not the way it was. The Greek army was many. It was powerful in terms of numbers and there were only a few Chashmanoim, a few Maccabees who were mounted against them. And yet it was the Maccabees, it was the Chashmanoim who won. And you could say, okay, those who are impure in this world, the impure always has the edge over the pure. You could have said that the impure were going to win. But no, that's not what happened. It was the Tahirim who won. It was the pure ones who were successful against the Tameim. Well, that's something different. That's not to be expected. And it was Rashoim Biyatzadikim, the wicked, those who are willing to stoop to the lowest level. They were the ones who were successful against um, uh, uh, the, uh, who should have been successful against the tzaddikim. But no, that's not the way it was. It was the tzaddikim who were successful against the Rishoyim. That doesn't make much sense. How do we explain it? You should know something, that the reason why the Jewish people won was not because it made any sense, because in and of itself it was a miracle, and it's a miracle that rises above the level 
of natural understanding. It cannot be scientifically explained. It cannot possibly be understood on the basis of tactics or whatever it was. This was a miracle. The winning, the victory of the Chashmonaim against the Yevonim was an absolute victory. And that being the case, Where does this come from, this idea of natural um, occurrences in the world? It comes from the seven days of creation. The idea of natural, of scientifically provable, of empirical evidence, of somehow knowing that that's the way things should be, that comes from the seven days of creation. The seven days creation are the ultimate representation of science, of physics, of chemistry, of biology, of everything that we understand in terms of the world. You can sit down in a laboratory, you can recreate the situation. It's not random, it's something that can be explained. However, that which is above nature, that which cannot be explained by nature, nimshach that comes from somewhere which is beyond our understanding, which in the Kabbalah is referred to as Zeir Ampin, the ultimate crown. Now, where is that? That's very interesting. Have you ever seen a picture of the Kabbalistic table? The Kabbalistic table is the ten sefirot and the way they correlate with each other. And there's seven underneath and there's three on top. That's the way the, the sefirot work. Now, the seven underneath, the seven bottom ones, underneath the top three, they are a representation, I guess, of the seven days of creation, of the, of the natural course of events that take place in the physical, in the material universe. So, hainu mimido hashminis shehibino. But... That which is beyond the natural course of, event, of events, that emanates from the aspect of the Kabbalistic table. If you want to do a search on Google, you can find it. That Kabbalistic table, the next level above the seven that are below is Bina. That's number eight. That is number eight. Bina is something which is beyond real, beyond natural, beyond science. That's already in the heavenly sphere. That is number eight. It's nothing to do with the menorah. And this is why it's version number three of the three types of answers, the three categories of answers that are given to the Beis Yosef's Kasha. Says Rabbi David Mintzberg, do you know why we light the menorah for eight nights? It's not because of the miracle of the oil. Of course, it's the miracle of the oil as well, and we commemorate that on Hanukkah. And the way we do that is via the menorah. But the eighth night tells you that the whole festival, the festival is a festival eight. It's a festival of beyond nature. It's a, a festival of beyond our understanding. The fact that the Hashmonaim won was purely because Hashem decided that there was going to be Hashkocha Protis Lemala Min Hateva. That there was going to be an individualized intervention by God to make sure that the Hashmonaim, the Hasmoneans, was successful against the Greek army. Laharais Shahanes Nimshach Mimido Hashminis. To tell us, and when we light the eighth night, 
That's what we should remember, that the reason we are lighting is because there was this miraculous involvement of God in this victory of the Chashmonaim against the Yavanim. This was not something that should have happened, it's something that did happen and therefore it is very powerful. Now source number three is a beautiful letter. Um, and so is source number four, both from the same person. Source number three and four are letters from Rabbi Baruch Ashlag. Rabbi Baruch Halevi Ashlag, Baruch Sholem Halevi Ashlag. He was born in 1907 in Poland. He died in 1991. He was an extraordinary Kabbalistic scholar. His father was the Baal Hasulam. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Halevi Ashlag, and he composed this incredible commentary, which I referred to earlier as possibly as a translation commentary. He took the Zohar, which is written in Aramaic, and he presented it to um, a modern world. It's in the 20th century, he wrote it in the 30s and 40s, and he presented the Zohar in Hebrew, in Loshna Kodesh, with his own interpretations so that ordinary folk could refer to Kabbalah and understand it. That was Rabbi Huda Levi Ashlag, he died in the 1950s. His oldest son was Rabbi Baruch Sholem Halevi Ashlag and unfortunately the family fell apart as a result of Machloikas about who had the publication rights to the Zohar with the Sulam's commentary, as a result of which Rabbi Baruch Sholem lived for a number of years in the UK. He lived in Manchester in the late 50s. Eventually he came back to Eretz Yisrael. He lived in Bnei Brak. He moved away from Yerushalayim and he lived in Bnei Brak. He opened a shul there. It's still there and it's an incredible center. It's the Merkaz um, Ari Ashlag in Bnei Brak. I believe his son or grandson runs it today. I've never been there, but they study the works of the Sulam and and of Baruch Sholem and all the many Talmidim of the Sulam and uh, those who have this Kabbalistic, this mystical leaning and who believe that the coming of Mashiach is very contingent on us understanding and have a deeper appreciation of the Kabbalistic, of the mystical side of the Jewish tradition. And Baruch Halevi Ashlag used to write letters to his Talmudim. In those days you didn't have WhatsApp and it was hard to phone, particularly if you were in a foreign country. And he would write letters. Eventually those letters were collected and put together in a book of letters of Rabbaruch Sholem Halevi Ashlag. It was published uh, um, at some point. And there's a number of letters which are to do with Hanukkah. I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to do both of them today, we don't have enough time, but if you look at your source sheet you'll, you'll see that there is a longer letter to begin with which is a fascinating letter um, to do with uh, uh, to do with my Hanukkah, that Hanukkah um, is, as you know Chazal say, why is Hanukkah the festival called Hanukkah? Chanukah, Chanukah Hei, that they rested on the 25th, which is the 25th of Kislev, but he uses the word Koi as opposed to Zer, which is based on a Chazal about Moshe Rabbeinu having a Nevius of prophecy at the level of Zer, and all other Nevi'im only having a prophecy at the level of Koi. He has a whole Mahalach, he has a whole way of understanding that, which is absolutely beautiful. But I'm going to look at the shorter letter which is source number four on your source sheet. It's a beautiful little letter. 
Dalat Hanukkah Dovshin Yutes, by which time he was back in Tel Aviv, and he says, uh, he gives all the greetings to whoever his correspondent was, and he says as follows, Ani mitgagea lishma mishloma mishalom mishpachto. I am so excited to hear um, about how you are and how your family is doing. I want to know how you're doing in terms of your parnosa, how you're able to support yourself. Because before I left you, the last time I was with you, you told me that you need further hatzlocha. So therefore, please let me know in your next letter exactly how you're doing. I'm very interested to know what your situation is. Please let me know as soon as possible. And then he digresses and says, you know, it's Hanukkah. I want to talk to you about Hanukkah. I want to end with Divrei Torah, says Reboruch Shalom Halevi Ashlag. We have this song that we sing on Hanukkah. Ma'oiz Tzur Yeshuasi. Katuv Yevanim Nikbetsu Alai Upartsu Chomot Migdalai. What does it say in the piece that we read right at the beginning of the Shir? We're back full circle. It says that they gathered up against me, the Yevanim, the Greeks, gathered up against me, and they broke through the walls of my tower. That's how the um, Payatan, whoever it is that wrote the Piyut of Maos Tzur, expresses the battle between the Greeks and the Jews, that they broke through the walls of my tower. The we need to understand. We said it earlier. What was it that they wanted to do? Two of the things that they wanted to, um, to destroy, to annihilate, to undermine, were Shabbat, and they wanted to annihilate, to abolish Mila. They wanted to get rid of the Shabbos day, of our seventh day special day of rest, and they wanted to get rid of the mitzvah of Brit Milah of circumcision. Why? Ki Shabbat nikra'im ot. There's only two things in the Torah which are referred to with the word ot as a sign. They are signs of what it means to be Jewish, of what it means to be connected to Hashem. Ve'ot brit nikra mitzvat emuna. And if you want to know, you understand the brit milah, what do we do when we have a baby? We circumcise that male child. What are we expressing? We are expressing our faith. Brit milah, circumcision, is an expression of the Jewish faith. Mishum davka it was for this reason, these two mitzvot, which are connected to the word ot as a sign, as a connection between God and the Jewish people, it was specifically those that they targeted because they wanted to get rid of our faith. As a result of abolishing faith, of getting rid of faith in the Jewish people, if you get rid of faith, if you can undermine a person's faith, 
you can actually get rid of all the mitzvahs in the Torah. Even if they keep the mitzvah, they don't, they don't believe in it. That's one of the sad things about people who, who undermine Jewish faith and continue to maintain that they are Jewish traditionalists or that they are Jewish in practice, whatever that may mean. We observe Shabbat because we think it's wonderful to have a day of rest, but it doesn't mean anything. It's not godly. That's why Reconstructionist Judaism is such an aberration for those who believe in the Torah, who believe in the Talmud, because it undermines the whole foundation of the Jewish faith. We don't believe in God. We believe in some system that created a, uh, um, a Jewish nation, and we must maintain the customs and traditions. We must uh, maintain the culture of the Jewish people, but it doesn't have any intrinsic meaning. It only has meaning if there's faith that underpins it. The fundamental aspect of every mitzvah is I'm keeping a mitzvah because I believe in Hashem. I believe that Hashem wants me to keep this mitzvah that he put in the Torah. He wants me to observe the mitzvahs that were put together by the sages of the Talmud. That's why we can say That's why we can can say that because we have such unbelievable faith that the Almighty God wants us to observe mitzvahs. If you undermine faith, you, under, you undermine every mitzvah. So if you get rid of Shabbos and Milah, which are the two mitzvahs most connected with faith, because the word ot, sign, is used in conjunction with those mitzvot, because we say ot hil olam, and we say ot brit, Shabbat, we say it as a sign forevermore, it's an eternal sign, and we say that the Ot Brit Kodesh, we say the holy sign of the circumcision, that this is somehow a signature. It's a connection that we have with Hashem. If those two mitzvahs are eradicated, the Greeks thought to themselves, the Jewish nation, the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith is finished. Ki hi chomat barzel. What is emuna? What is faith? It's like a wall of steel. It's a firewall. That's the modern terminology. You can't get through it. If somebody believes, they believe. Now, they may do an Avera. I don't want to say that everyone who has faith in Hashem, who has proper emuna, never does an Avera, because people do do Averas. But they still have faith. They have that to hold on to. It's an anchor. It's something that keeps them within the fold, within the walls of the Jewish world. It's a chomat barzel. It's a firewall. Hainu shemira gedola shelo yikanezar bikdusha. No, there can be no foreign uh, visitor. There can be no undermining through some kind of, you know, like a little bug that gets in and that gets through the, into the system and then can completely destroy it. There's no virus that can get through that firewall. There's nothing that can undermine faith. Ultimately, even if a person sometimes is weak in certain aspects of their observance of Jewish law, the faith is what holds them. The faith is what keeps them. It is a reflection. If you wanted to make somehow, if you wanted to create a diagram, it is a complete reflection. If there was a graph, if you wanted to know a graph that has faith on one side and your connection to Jewish life on the other, the 
more powerful a person's faith, the more connected they are to Jewish observance and to Jewish law. The more you believe, the more you're connected to Torah, the more you're connected to mitzvot. It's a fact because you're going to want to cleave to Hashem. You're going to want to stay close to Hashem. It is only through the observance of Torah and mitzvot that you're able to access the hidden light. That is within it because mitzvot have hidden light. And we know that the Torah certainly has a hidden light. You want to get to it, you want to access it, you have to have imunah. That's the, that's the secret passcode that gets you into the system. Once you have that passcode and you're in there, then you can observe Jewish, uh, the, uh, Jewish the mitzvot, Jewish faith is going to keep you and it's going to give you access to the ultimate light. Every aspect that's going to enliven you as a Jew is only accessible via this key that we all have that's called Emunah. That which is Torah, that which is, which is mitzvot, that is our life. That is how we can uh, sustain ourselves as Jews. And that's what it means when the Payatan, the person who composed Ma'is Tzur, said, and they broke through Chomot Migdalai. They broke through the walls, the firewalls of my tower, of the tower that protected me. They managed to break through. There were so many Jews, unfortunately, at the time of Hanukkah, who did not observe Jewish law, who weren't able to keep their faith, who somehow were, uh, became assimilated into the Hellenistic culture of the Greeks who ruled over them. Says Rabbi Baruch HaLevi Ashlag, it is only through this tower, through remaining in this tower of emunah, that we can um, access everything that is good about what God gives us in this world. And that is all the wonderful goodies that are available to us through the Torah. You can learn the Torah as a scholar, as a secular scholar. And it won't have the same impact on you as if you, when you learn it, as a person who's an ish emunah, a person of faith. If you learn Torah and you have faith, you have emunah in Hashem, it is a powerful experience. It can be a life-changing experience. If you just learn it as a scholar, it's a book like any other book. You could, you could study Shakespeare, you could study the Bible. That's the level of meaning it will have to you. It's just a bunch of words on a page. And that's what it means when it says, the and there was a miracle. Do you know what the miracle was? That God helped them and they managed to they managed to take control of the situation. They managed to overpower the powers of Yavan, of Greek, 
of the Greeks, of the Hellenization that threatened the spiritual existence of the Jewish nation. As a result of which they managed to access the ultimate light, the light of Hanukkah, the light of the menorah, the light that we light every night of Hanukkah to commemorate this incredible victory. The Zenikra Ner Hanukkah, that is the light, that is the shining light the ultimate light of Hanukkah. It is the light that we receive, that we are able to access, that we are able to take benefit from as a result of the victory of Hanukkah, of the Hashmonaim against the Yavanim of the Maccabees against the might of the Greek army. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And have a Chanukah Sameach.